0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. When I think of a people pleaser, I think of a a politician. I think of someone that is very skilled in compromise, in being a chameleon, depending on which environment that person is in, they change with that environment, they have no backbone. Whatever is happening at that moment, they shift their perspective in order to align with the right group of people at the right time. And so this is what he is being accused of. And so we pick up a large portion of scripture in Galatians 1 verse 11. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't picked up one of these journals, these are Galatians journals that have the scripture on one side, and opportunity for you to take notes on that side that you would do so after the gathering. For I would have you know, brothers, this is Paul speaking, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, whose Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then when I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately because those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter, also who is Cephas, had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship Sorry, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He sounds a little defensive. He sounds a little unaccountable, and he sounds a little stubborn. And when we think of those things, we're like defensiveness and stubbornness and unaccountability are things that we don't necessarily see as compatible with the nature of Jesus, with leaders in his church, and and even with Christians. So how do we make sense of this large portion of scripture, a lot of it which is geography, right? And geography that we are very unfamiliar with. I think the one thing that we need to start off with is recognizing this, that Paul is not defending himself as much as he's defending the gospel. And so Paul says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In verse 11 he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important to note that in those days there was a very clear separation between the original apostles and other apostles that were tasked with planting churches. So, For example, we know that Barnabas was an apostle, we know that Titus ended up being an apostle, but in order to be one of the original apostles, there were two things you had to have, two things had to have happened to you. One, you needed to see the resurrected Jesus. And the second thing was that your commission to be an apostle had to have come from Jesus. And so what was being said about Paul was that he had none of that. Uh, He had not seen Jesus, and Jesus had not actually directly given him a commission. But what we know when we read in Acts 9 is that Paul did receive his commission from the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Not only did he receive it, but there were earwitnesses, not necessarily eyewitnesses because it says, though the people with Paul didn't see the person, they heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul said, Who are you, Lord? And we go through and figure out that he does eventually figure out who that is. Now, because his authority is being directly challenged, and because he is the one that planted the churches in Galatia in that region, there's a sense in which those churches are illegitimate. They're not complete in the faith because the men weren't circumcised, they're not following the dietary laws, and they are not following the holy days that are set up in the Jewish calendar. So we have that problem. We also have the fact that they are saying that Paul is not an approved apostle. And this would have made the churches feel kind of like second class in the sense that, that they, aren't, um, they aren't as important as the churches in Jerusalem. This is maybe where you, those of you that have maybe traveled around and you get offered a Rolex and then you look and you see it's called a Romex, right? And it looks the same and you put it on, and maybe you can't really tell the difference, but it's not the same thing. And what the churches in Galatia were basically being told is that you are not the same. You are not legitimate. You don't belong to us. And in order to belong to us, you need to have done these three things. So Paul is adamant that he's saying to the churches, you are not second class. But because they feel more second class, they are more prone to aligning themselves with externals that make them more acceptable to the people that are coming in. His main concern is not his reputation. His main concern is the stability of that church. Peter, the apostle that he's talking about, writes later on, as Peter himself is writing to Gentiles, says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope That is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Making a defense of the gospel and being defensive are two different things. We are called to make a defense of the gospel. We are not called to live in a defensive posture. That affects our motive, that affects the way that we respond to people, and we don't respond when we're defensive, we react to people, and yet we are called to make a defense of the gospel. When I turned 50, I was talking to a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about this idea of enemies and needing to, to defend yourself. And we're talking about that in our, in our 20s and in our 30s. I thought I had enemies. You know, I was insecure and I was defensive, and I thought, like, if people didn't agree with me, they were my enemy and they were out to get me. And when I turned 50, I realized that I have enemies. I've lived long enough to actually legitimately have enemies. And so we were kind of going back and forth about, remember the times when we were in our 20s and we thought we had so many enemies, but we didn't. But now in our 50s, we have enemies. Paul had enemies. Paul had people that were literally pursuing him from city to city, trying to undermine the fullness of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel that he's trying to bring to the Gentile people. Winston Churchill says this, you have enemies, good. That means that you've stood up for something, sometime in your life. And we are called to be those that speak of the hope within us, called to be those that defend the true gospel against the false gospels. We do it in a way that defends the gospel, not ourselves, in a way that is not defensive. Secondly, he does sound a little unaccountable. And how does a geography lesson help with him looking Kind of unaccountable. Well, one of the things is that there was a rumor that Paul was a Jerusalem based Christian worker who went rogue. And he was not supported or sent by the Jerusalem church. And so, giving the history of where he was, including the geography, gives the Galatian church confidence that this was not true. He wants them to stand firm. He wants them to remember that they're not separate or second class. And his journeys show that he's not a rebel. His journeys show that he was led by conviction and knew how to play in team. However, he is very compromising, uncompromising on the message of God's free gift of grace without anything being added to it. God's free gift of grace, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not amplified by any kind of empty ritual or any alignment to any kind of nationality. People often ask me, where are you from? And I just say South Africa. Well, that's the simplistic story, right? I was born to Greek parents. My dad from Greece, my mom from Cyprus, who ended up in Port Sudan. They immigrated to South Africa. I was born in Zimbabwe, then moved to Saudi Arabia. See, even, even I'm getting confused. Moved to Saudi Arabia for a year, then to South Africa, and then finally ended up here. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is because a lot of that has shaped who I am. I don't speak a lot of that, but there are times when I'll mention some of that because it's affected the way I view my life. So let's look at why Paul was saying these things. We know that Paul was in Jerusalem, and he was presiding over the stoning of a man called Stephen. And what he was, what he was doing was holding cloaks while Jews were grabbing stones and killing Stephen because Stephen was saying that Jesus was the Messiah. He then travels up to Damascus with warrants of arrest in order to arrest and imprison people of the way, people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. On the way to Damascus, he sees the risen Christ. He has a revelation of Jesus. As he said, he falls to his knees, he becomes blind, he gets baptized by someone, comes to faith, and then immediately goes back up to Damascus and preaches there and preaches that Jesus Christ is the Messiah for all people, anathema number one, and he's been raised from the dead, anathema number two. So what happens? We'll begin to see a bit of a pattern with Paul's life. He preaches, people try kill him, and this is what happens in Damascus. People try to kill him, he is let down in a basket outside of the city, he comes back to Jerusalem. He comes back to Jerusalem, and and you would think that he'd be safe in Jerusalem. Hey, guys, I'm now one of you, and no one in Jerusalem wants to hang out with him. Why? Because he's been presiding over the murder and imprisonment of people of the way. So here he is, and he says, hey, guys, I'm one of you now. It's like those spy movies, right, where you're trying to figure out, is this guy on our side? Is he not on our side? And so Scripture tells us that he tried to join the disciples there, but they they didn't want to have him. And so they said, Paul, you know what we're going to do? It's all great that you've come to faith in the way, but uh, we're going to take you up to Caesarea. We're going to put you on a ship and send you back up to Tarsus, kind of as far away from us as you can go. You're going to go up to Tarsus. And what he does there is he preaches in the region called Arabia, which is, which is kind of all of this region, Cilicia, Syria, and Arabia. It's at that moment, separate of Paul, that there is a revival of Gentile believers in Antioch of Syria. Now this is part of the confusing part because there's Antioch of Syria, which is here, and then there's an Antioch um, in uh, Pisidia. So these Gentiles get saved. The people in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem hear about it, and they're like, what are we going to do? I know what we're going to do. We're going to send Barnabas. We trust Barnabas, we know him, we're going to send Barnabas and see if this is really of the faith, if these are really people of the way. And so Barnabas goes up to Antioch, and then he thinks to himself, I know someone who can help. I'm going to go to Tarsus, and I'm going to bring Paul so that he can help me preach to the Gentile believers here in Antioch. And so he calls Paul, who is fluent in Greek, he calls Paul, and Paul and Barnabas preach there for a year. Then what happens in that church is they have a prayer meeting and there's this prophetic revelation and Paul speaks of this prophetic revelation there's this prophetic revelation that there's going to be a famine and so what they decide is they're going to gather money and they're going to take this money and they're going to go back down to Jerusalem and so Paul and Barnabas from Antioch go all the way back to Jerusalem and they are given the uh, and they give the gift of money to the Jerusalem church It's at that time that Paul and Cephas kind of connect over those 15 days, and then they are given the right hand of fellowship, and they go up, back up to Antioch. Next slide. So they go back up to Antioch, and they start what we know as Paul's first missionary journey, which is kind of unfair because at this stage, Barnabas is still the main guy. Saul is kind of with him. But it's at this stage where we see the Barnabas and Saul story begin to become the Paul and Barnabas story. And so they set off from, um, from Seleucia through Cyprus, they plant the churches in Galatia, and then Paul gets bad news that the Galatians are, part of, are beginning to listen to a false gospel. Was that quick enough, babe? My wife says, you can geek out on these things, but you're going to put people to sleep if you do that. You know what I mean? So hopefully, okay, right. Now pay attention again. I do want to say one thing about that. If you were Paul, would you not have quit by now? I mean, you preach in Damascus, people want to kill you. You go down to Jerusalem to join the apostles, they don't want to have anything to do with you. They send you far away. Whatever you are doing in terms of preaching the gospel, you're doing on your own because no one will trust you. But one guy says, I know someone who can help. There's one Barnabas who comes and says, Paul, you can help us. Come and help us and I will vouch for you. Barnabas vouched for Paul in Jerusalem, but they didn't even believe Barnabas. He says, guys, I know this man. I know he preached that Jesus is the Christ in Damascus, and they still wouldn't believe him. And Barnabas still went back up um, when he was in in Antioch and said, I'm still going to call Paul because I trust him. And I believe that God has a purpose for him. We see that Paul was not some kind of rebellious maverick. It says that he went up because of the revelation, the famine, and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Paul was not saying, I don't care what you guys are doing, I'm doing my own thing. This is key here. He went back to the church in Jerusalem and said, guys, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm preaching. I want to make sure that I am building what you, through Jesus, given you apostleship in terms of the Jews, that we are building together. I want to make sure that we are doing that. But I have this conviction through Jesus Christ that you cannot call Gentiles to do what Jews are doing simply to become part of the faith. You cannot add anything to the gospel. He's not saying he doesn't care about leadership or authority or unity. And when he says that they added nothing to me, he he doesn't mean that they didn't add value to him. He's not that arrogant. He's literally saying that they did not add extra requirements to the gospel. When he says, they didn't add anything to me, they didn't say, okay, do this and, or do this and. The only thing that they said to him is, remember the poor. That was the only thing that they said to him. Yes, continue to preach, but remember the poor. I want to say this in terms of us with Barnabas. I want to do a character, I have, I want to do a preach thing on Barnabas. I love Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is an amazing, amazing character. And he doesn't get the props he deserves. But I think that's part of what the Spirit is actually teaching us in all of this. In Acts 9, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. No, I mean, that's a valid fear. This is a man who was murdering, maybe not actively, but standing in support of murder, imprisonment, and torture of people that believed the way. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. And brought into the apostles and declared to them on the road that he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. I want you guys to think back of someone who believed in you when no one else believed in you. In fact, quite the opposite. When people had good reason not to trust you, and someone stood up and said, Jesus has transformed this person, I trust the work of Jesus in the life of this person. Where literally, to use an Americanism, someone goes to bat for you. There's the sense of like, "I I am going to be responsible for this person. Is there someone in your life that has gone out of their way? I'm gonna go from Antioch to Tarsus and I'm gonna fetch Paul for a number of reasons. One, because I know he's isolated on his own, but Jesus has given him the gospel to the Gentiles but also because I want to partner with this person. There are gifts in this person that I want to call out. When last did we do that? We got out of our way to include someone and remind them of the gift that God has given them, even when they can't see it or even when people around them refuse to see it. When was the last time that we were willing to have our reputation tainted because we wanted to include this person into our group? And the group around us was like, I'm, I'm not sure that this person fits into our group. When was the last time that we were a Barnabas to someone and said, come, I'll vouch for you, come and be part of this. And even when the group rejects them, Barnabas does not reject Paul. When was the last time we were able to recognize gifts in someone? And this is a hard thing. When, when last did we recognize gifts in someone that we perhaps knew would be way bigger than ours? Now, it's easy to say, oh, Patrick, come here and be my apprentice and be my mentor, you know? That's pretty cool. We like that, you know? We like to have someone following us around and, you know, picking up our coffee and do he doesn't do any of those things, okay? <laughs> we should talk about that, though. But, um, so this idea of having an apprentice and a mentor is great, but what about when the apprentice or the mentor actually begins to overtake? The, I mean, the, the mentee begins to overtake the mentor. Like was Barnabas sitting there thinking, I can't believe this. I vouched for him. I put my life at risk. And now, like everyone, is just responding to Paul. It kind of really begins to get at us. And this is not just in the context of ministry. This is in the context of family. This is in the context of work. In work, when we look around and we see someone with a lot of skill and a lot of talent, and one of the things, are we genuinely happy that they are succeeding? Are we genuinely happy? Do we want to help them succeed? Or are we that defensive and insecure that their success is going to affect me? We need to be more like Barnabas. Finally, it's, it's not finally. I'm so glad Paul repeats himself multiple times. The Holy Spirit has saved the repetition in order to say it's acceptable. No, I'm you know. Um It's not inflexibility, but it's conviction and call. And Paul's call is based on two things. It's based on a revelation, and it's based on the fact that he was rescued. Revelation for me is, is key in this, because for I did not receive from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gospels. The first thing that Paul says to Jesus is, who are you, Lord? The next thing that he does is he goes to Damascus and he preaches, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not a prophet, not a teacher, not a miracle worker. Does all those things, but that, that is not what his primary purpose is. And he is not just the Messiah for the Jewish race. He is the Messiah for everyone, then they try to kill him. That's what happens. Now, this is not a conversion per se. This is a revelation into the fullness of Jesus, and what do you mean by that, Nick? If I, if I covered this stand with a tablecloth, you would know that there's something under the stand, and if I ripped the tablecloth over off, you would see what's under it. That's what the word revelation means. Um, It doesn't mean that something wasn't there and now something is. It means that there was something that was always there that was a little bit hidden, but now has been revealed to you by the grace of God. And I would say within the context of our modern Western world, particularly in the United States, um, when someone comes to faith, they come to faith out of revelation who Jesus is, not necessarily out of an opposite faith or no faith or like, wow, this is brand new to me. But out of an understanding of Jesus, you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We have a young woman in our life group, Samantha, who got baptized at Easter. She's in kids, serving in kids. Isn't that amazing? And, and she came to faith out of revelation. She grew up um, in, in the Catholic faith, and Jesus revealed himself to her in a unique way. She came to faith, she was baptized. This Wednesday, we prayed for her dad, who's Fernando, and her brother who's Fernando, and her friend who's Fernando. And I kid you not, this is true. And, um, and what we were praying was we were praying for her dad, that her dad would come to faith, because he has, you know, he, she's been witnessing to him. He's like, "I can't believe how, how changed your life is." And 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 they are seeing something in him, and then she sends us a WhatsApp, um, and she said, "Well, we prayed for Fernando, but actually, my brother Fernando prayed a prayer of salvation today, what? and he walked into the kingdom because a revelation of Jesus came through Samantha, the Barnabas. That's like, man, this is who Jesus is, and now we keep praying for the other two Fernandos, right?" <laughs> And we will hopefully have a time where we baptize multiple Fernandos, right? Amen. Paul was rescued. Now, when you think of Paul and you think of him as a type A, full of zeal, go-getter, you don't think of him as being rescued, but he was rescued. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's saying, guys, I'm not ignorant. I'm not unintelligent. I'm not unschooled. I'm not unaware of Jewish culture and history. In fact, I was an accelerated student of that and was so zealous to God. Judaism from all the perverters of the faith that I was giving credence to murder and I was actually capturing people. I know what this is. Paul's brutality was functioning to, in his mind, he was rescuing Judaism from the impurity of what this gospel was, and he himself was rescued. Heather um, McLeod, her dad is Josh McDowell, and many of you will know that Josh McDowell's Um, journey of faith started as a lawyer where he decided he was going to disprove the existence of Jesus and the resurrection, and started writing a book, and then came to faith and wrote that amazing book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that basically through historical evidences came to a place of saying Jesus Christ not only existed, not only the Son of God died and was raised again. This is the story of Paul. Only in a much more brutal way. I'm pretty sure Josh didn't kill anybody that was opposed to his view before that. Paul continues, because he wants to rescue the Galatian church from something that is very critical and something that we'll see as we go through Galatians, and that is the concept of slavery. But even if Titus, who was with me, was even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who spied on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of of the gospel may be preserved. I said this last week, but circumcision as an adult is a brutal thing. And I'm actually personally surprised that so many of the people in the Galatian churches are saying, sure, I'll do that, yeah, let me, let me do that to prove that. But, but it, you've also got to understand in the way in which oftentimes men's mind work, is like, this is how committed I am. I am so committed to this that I'm going to prove this. Neil will say, you know, if CrossFit was easy, then everyone would do it, right? Is this, this whole thing of like, if it was easy, everyone could do it. And so what you're doing was you're showing that the, I know that the law is difficult, following the law is difficult following the law is costly and it's exclusive. That was the point. Mm. The other challenge that they had in the Galatian church was there was not yet a written record of Jesus's words. So at the time that these churches are planted, the record of Jesus's words and acts were being put together, but they weren't there yet. But you know what they did have a record of? They had a record of the Torah. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So that's really hard to actually say you don't need to be circumcised because Jesus came and said all you need to activate freedom in your life is an expression of faith in me by grace and mercy and you don't have to do anything else. And it's hard when the Judaizer is saying, it says here you need to be circumcised. And so that's what they were facing. And that's what helps us understand how did people get so caught up in this. The challenge with most of us is that it's easier to take part in a faith that is mainly external than it is to participate in a faith that, as Paul will say later on in chapters 5 and 6, is really about the state of your heart. And so we like the idea of like, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm circumcised, I don't eat this, and I go to these uh, meetings. So that's what makes it, no, what Paul is saying is, that is slavery to the law. Now to the Gentiles, he says later on, doing whatever you want to do, and however you want to do it, that's also not the gospel, that's slavery to the flesh. What you guys are, are slaves to Jesus. That's what I am, and that's what you are. And it's a different kind of, this kind of slavery brings you total freedom. And that's what Paul continues to preach. As I said, I I grew up um, in South Africa, and we had uniforms. And the uniform consisted of gray slacks, a white shirt. Everyone in the country wore that. And the differentiation was your tie and your blazer, right? So think Harry Potter, right? And by the way, we were wearing Doc Martens way before they were cool, okay? (laughs) Way before they were cool. You had to have black shoes on. And so, one of the key responsibilities of prefects, and one of the key responsibilities of staff, was your representation in the school. And so I remember getting caned multiple times, not for issues of character, but for how I looked. My hair wasn't short enough, my tie was too long, um, my... You know, when you wear a uniform, you try different things to make yourself look different. So like guys would sew their pants really tight, just anything to make you look different. And you would get caned for those things. And I remember um, when we would fight in the back behind the bike shed. I mean, this is real. The one thing we had to do was we had to take our ties off and take our blazers off because then no one could tell which school we were from and no one could tell... And, and, and we were not badly representing the school. So when the PE teacher arrived and someone was fighting with a tie-on, the issue was not that they were fighting. The issue was that they had their tie-on. People are going to know you're from Edenville High School, and we are not those thugs from Eden Glen High School. There's that kind of... And so the idea of externals does not really, none of that changed. If a a woman walked into the room, I would stand up and I would say, good morning, ma'am, good morning, sir. I would be polite. None of that changed my character. And what Paul is saying in the context of the Galatian church is it's much easier to align with these externals. The work of the Spirit in your life is much more difficult. And he talks about that with fruit of the Spirit. There's a couple reasons that people don't respond to the gospel. And I think the first reason is that it's it's really illogical. I mean, I mean, it, it it goes against human intelligence. I mean, Isaiah says, "Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow." Oh, great! I'm glad that's solved. What, what does that even what does that mean? If we're going to make up a religion, if we're going to invent a faith. Maybe we should do one that's not as confusing as the Trinity. How about that? How about we start there and just actually say, if we're going to make something up, let's, let's not include that. You know? Let's not include the virgin birth. Let's not do that because people really don't understand that. This idea that our God dies, it doesn't really seem to speak of strength and victory and power and authority. That doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. It's one stumbling block, one offense, one scandal, after another. And, and that may erode your faith, but it amplifies my faith, because I, I literally am sitting here, there is no way that a bunch of guys sat down and thought, let's do this. Yeah. Let's figure this out, because this would be easy for people to understand, you know. Paul was intelligent. He was a scholar. He was an overachiever. And this is important. He's not saying that the revelation of Jesus came to him because of that, He's saying that it came to him in spite of that. In spite of all of these things, Jesus revealed himself to me, and I came to a place of recognizing that he was the Son of God. The problem is that we think that, okay, it's not logical, so I can't ascend to it. Well, if you ascend to Christianity because it's logical, that is very shaky ground because we don't ascend to Christianity because it's logical. We ascend to it because there is a sense of faith that we place in there. How do I understand the Trinity? Well, I can work it out and we can talk about it, and it is explainable, but ultimately there is a sense of faith to be able to to say that. Is there evidence from Jesus being raised from the dead? Yes, there is, but ultimately we need to believe that. We can't figure out revelation Secondly, people don't come to faith because it's just culture and tradition. This is just for a certain group of people in a certain place, and we're just being colonialists if we are saying that you need to actually take this faith on. It only applies to people of a specific ethnic marker. Now, the irony in my family is when I got saved and I went to my dad, total Greek Orthodox, some of you have met my dad, it's an experience, and so... (laughs) And so I'm I'm preaching to my dad, and and he says, Nick, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm Greek. (laughs) So are you. You were always a Christian. You were Greek. And there's the sense in which that we ascend to this idea that our relationship with Jesus is determined by the way in which we grew up and the culture in which we grew up in. Because it's, it's only for a certain amount of people. Now, I can understand the foreigner, this is what he's saying about Corinth, I can understand the foreigner needing to come to a place of recognizing who Jesus is, but the reality is we're Greek. This is, you know, this is, we started the whole thing. We started everything, you know, (laughs) big fat Greek wedding, you know, the whole thing. It's funny, you know, in the States up until 10 years ago, being an American was synonymous to being a Christian. It was that idea. When I was in Saudi Arabia as a six-year-old, I remember I was in a store and a call to prayer came up. Allah, what, it was like five o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the evening. You had to go to prayer if you were, if you were a Muslim. And the security guards came in with shambucks, and they would chase everyone out of the store to go to prayer, physically chase them out. They didn't chase us out. Thank goodness. I mean, they didn't chase us out. Why? Because there was a certain culture and race that this was applicable to and not applicable here. And so for many of us, there's the sense in which when we speak of the true gospel of Jesus, there's the sense of disconnect with people. Maybe you're here today and there's a sense of disconnect. This is illogical. This applies to your culture. This applies to your generation. But it does not. J.T. Pugh says this, The cross has never been compatible to any culture. Its preaching has always established a counterculture. Jesus Christ is timeless. He's not the product of any human culture and thus has never been enmeshed in any one culture. Mm. He both transforms and transcends culture. And again, the difficulty, and this is where we we as the church have failed. The difficulty, as I spoke last week, is, is we've taken gospel differences and we've made it a different gospel. And we've said, in order for you to come to faith, you need to act in this specific external way. And so in South Africa, there was a friend of mine, and, um, and he was said to me, Nick, uh, he was out in Mpumalanga, and he was planting a church. He was black. And he said to me, the problem is when you guys came, you guys, kind of white colonists, when you guys came, he said, you gave us bread, but you put it in a packet. And a packet in, in, in South Africa, those days, were like this like light plastic packet, you know? And he says, and you made us eat it with the plastic on. And so we choked on the plastic and rejected the bread. And what you've got to learn to do is take the the container out, the cultural container, and actually say, this is the bread of life. This is the bread of life. And we need the wisdom of God when we do that. Because what we can say is worshiping your ancestors and worshiping Jesus is not plastic. That's not plastic. That's not the true faith of Jesus. But coming to church in a suit and tie when it's 105 degrees because people have told you that you need to respect God at church, that is plastic. And so, guys, I know we've made mistakes on both sides of those things. But one of the things that we can commit to is saying, Jesus... By your grace and the Holy Spirit, help us to discern what is plastic and what is bread. So that we don't have our friends and family choke on the plastic. But then what we offer is also meaningless yeah. because it's not actually bread. Mm-hmm. Lastly, we we don't like God's choice. You know the person that you see who is a Christian and you're like, ah, oh, don't know about that, man. Don't know about you, don't like you. Don't want to be around you. You're telling me about this. I mean, like, I don't know why God chose Abraham. He just chose him, just sovereignly. I don't know why God chose Paul, just sovereignly. I can imagine these people thinking, seriously? Seriously, you chose this guy, this this murderer, to do that. What a scandalous choice. A man approving of imprisonment and murder. A man who became the principal missionary. Now, Now, we know this. Um, Jewish men and rabbis would wake up and they would say this prayer. Thank God that I'm not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. That's what they would pray. And later on in Galatians, I'm kind of ruining now. Later on in Galatians, Paul says there is no slave, no man, no woman, no Greek. So in that moment, that prayer that he's been taught to pray since he was a child, that is obliterated. Obliterated in that moment. This is the guy. That God chooses to reveal Jesus Christ and say the thing that you need to have peace with God and purpose in your life is to be able to say, Jesus, you're the Son of God. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You obliterated sin and you broke the power of it when you rose again. And then you flooded my life with the Holy Spirit so that I could be able to glorify you in my work, in my family, so others would see your grace. Jews demand a sign, band, you can come up, and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, scandalon, a scandal, we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews, and folly, moroi, and that's the word we get moron from, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, to those that Jesus is revealing himself to, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is revealing himself to you. Maybe you're on a road to Damascus where you're like, I'm, I'm done with this. Maybe you're wandering around in the desert like Paul was. Or maybe you're like Barnabas. You've been in this for a while. Jesus is revealing himself to you. And this morning, I want to ask you, maybe you're one of those people where there's a sense in which you have allowed the enemies of the true gospel, spiritual and otherwise, to make you lack confidence in the gospel. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, God, do I really, is this really true? Do I really have the true gospel? Is this really what you meant when you meant abundant life? And we know enemies come in all shapes and sizes. They come in podcasts. They come in friends. They come in spiritual oppression. Have I allowed that to reshape my view of the gospel? Have I allowed that to reshape what is plastic and what is bread? Have I allowed that to erode the confidence in the gospel? And I want to pray for just a fresh outpouring of grace for you in that. Maybe this morning you're just defensive and insecure And that is how you're responding to your world. Instead of convicted and called. And instead of engaging, we are being defensive. And we're just putting stuff out there that makes us look like this is a false gospel. Like all you have is an empty plastic bag. And we're waving that around. And lastly, I want to ask you, Is who is God calling you to be a Barnabas to? Someone in your life that you can go fetch. Someone in your life that you can actually say, man, I know this person. I know what they did. I know what they did. But Jesus has transformed them. Who is that? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that even in a bunch of geography and history, the The revelation of the kindness of Jesus that draws us to repentance, that reveals the Son, that we can rest on that. I want to pray this morning that we would have a fresh revelation of the gospel that calls us to freedom and not into slavery. I want to pray, God, for my friends who are just lacking confidence in the gospel. God, I want to pray. Not that they would try harder, do more, but that they would live out of the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ in them. I wanna pray God for those men and women that that are defensive and protective. I wanna pray, Father, that they would function out of conviction and call. And God, I wanna pray that you would illuminate in our minds men and women that we need to fetch, Men and women that we need to vouch for. Men and women that we need to be more secure with because their gift is bigger than ours. Jesus, we are yours. Spirit of God, minister as we sing to you.
1: Thank you, Nick, for delivering a message of what the true gospel is the conviction to hold fast to the true bread of life. Um, this morning, I, uh, I just felt a call uh, for a response for two different groups of people. Um, the first is, as Nick mentioned, if you feel like you need prayer for discernment and grace to separate the bread of life from the plastic of the false gospel, and that is things from our culture that's being put around the gospel, from um, your church experience, from your family of origin, whatever that is, um, God is gracious and good. It does not want to bring shame, but actually wants to help you unwrap. Unwrap that, take the plastic off and offer you the bread of life. Um, and the second group is actually for, yeah, for people who have um, been wounded and are holding bitterness from times when they've choked on that plastic. Or people have put things on you that are not of the gospel um, and that have really deeply wounded you. God wants to offer um, healing and also wants to bring uh, grace and forgiveness. That bitterness is not for you. Um, the forgiveness is actually... Um, it's, it's freeing, it's life-giving, and it's healing. So there's going to be trusted men and women um, to your right who are there to pray for you. Um, for the rest of us, we're going to go to the table um, and take the bread of life together. So I invite you to go get um, bread, uh, bread and juice. There is tables to, the le- uh, to your right and to the back, and we'll come take that together. God, we thank you that you <laughs> turn graves into gardens. God, where is, there is death, you bring new life. that is not just a one-time thing, God. You are continually making us new. You're continuing to teach us what it means to feast on the bread of life and to live like we're free, to live into that identity. As this morning, if, um, yeah, if, if any of those words uh, applied to you, you feel is stirring that you need prayer for discernment, uh, to separate the, the bread of life from the plastic of false gospels, or if you want to deal with your bitterness and wounds, um, again, we have people uh, to the side to pray for you. For the rest of us, uh, would you stand with me as we um, take the meal that brings, that brings life? Um, Father God, we thank you for the bread of life, your body that was broken so that we can be made whole you take and eat. Father God, we thank you for your blood that was shed, that washes us clean. We no longer have to hold on to the sins and the wounds of our past, God, but you look at us as made new, washed clean, welcomed in. Would you take and drink? <laughs> We're going to continue to uh, just worship, um, trusting in God that he is who he says he is, and there's nothing that needs to be added. Declaring the truth of who he is, Uh, If there's other things you want prayer for, please receive prayer. Um, There's nothing that God won't and can't do in your life. He's a good father. Let's trust him for that. We declare that that is true. There is nothing better than you. It's the gospel and nothing else that saves us. Would you help us hold on to that truth? Would you help us separate The bread of life from the plastic of false gospels would you help us feast on that bread every day would you would you tear down the lies of what we believe about you help us see you for who you truly are father god we thank you for this gift of life we thank you that it's not on us that we don't have to rely on our own strength, that we can rest in the truth that your gospel is enough, your sacrifice is enough. We are your children and nothing can change that. God, would you be with us as we go today? Would you help us, stir in us the courage, the faith to share that bread of life, Father, trusting that the the souls in our life can be turned to Paul's? God, would would you spur us on to share your gospel, to share the truth of who you are. We love you and we need you. We thank you. Amen. Thank you all. Uh, we're officially, uh, our time of official gathering is done, but we're going to continue meeting together out in the back. Um, if you need to receive prayer, there's people, again, to your right. Um, parents, go get your kids from Kids Ministry. We'd love to be with you. This uh, band's just going to play over us. Um, thank you again. Go be the church.